You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark and Jace. This is episode number 78. Thanks for tuning into the show where we interview millionaires and talk about their portfolio allocation and investing strategies. A special thanks to Equity Multiple for supporting today's show. One of the tried and true paths to becoming and staying a millionaire is establishing passive income streams. Perhaps the most tried and true passive income channel for savvy investors is commercial real estate. Equity Multiple connects accredited investors with pre-vetted, exclusive commercial real estate investments with investment minimums as low as $10,000. With Equity Multiple, you can allocate a meaningful portion of your portfolio to professionally managed commercial real estate and create a stronger, more diversified portfolio. Head to equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires to learn more. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires, and you can tell them Clark and Jay sent you. If you'd like to invest in our multifamily opportunities, feel free to reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'll jump on a call with you to discuss any opportunities we have and, and the strategy there. We're partnering with a couple of different groups that have investments in different parts of the country, and those investments are open to both accredited and non-accredited investors. If you'd like to be on the show as either a millionaire or someone who's close to reaching millionaire status and, and tell us your story and your strategies and kind of unveil your allocation to help all of us. We'd love to, to speak with you. Again, our email is unveiled at gmail.com if you'd like to be on the show. Next week, we'll have a millionaire interview, but this week we have a special guest episode with Kevin Bupp. We talked to him about mobile, par- mobile home park and real estate investing. So without any further delay, let's get into our discussion with Kevin. Today on the show, we have Kevin Bupp. You might know him from the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast or Mobile Home Park Investing. Kevin, do you want to just give us a little about your background and kind of what you're doing now with mobile home parks? Yeah, absolutely. And first and foremost, I appreciate you guys having me here on the show. Very much, very much looking forward to it. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the background, I'll, I'll, um, I'll try not to go uh, you know, you know, too deep and too much timely here, but I'll give you the full, the full story. I started investing when I was 19 years old. And it was really by accident. And uh, you know, a lot of people kind of are searching for something when they run across real estate. I can tell you I was searching for something, but real estate wasn't top of mind at all. I didn't really know what was top of mind, but real estate wasn't, it wasn't really part of my vocabulary at that point. But I got introduced to it by a gentleman that was about 20 years older than I. Uh, it was literally through a girl I was dating. This guy was dating her mother and uh, became friends with him, kind of figured out what it was he was doing. He lived a pretty cool lifestyle, dressed really nice, had a nice car. And he seemed to always be around at like the times when you thought adults are supposed to have like a real job and be at a nine to five. Um, and I'd always use like crack jokes at him because he would show up at, the, at my girlfriend's house or her mom's house at, you know, in the afternoon. And I'd be like, what are you doing, buddy? Did you get fired? You know, why aren't you at your job? And uh, anyway, his name was David. And, and, and ultimately, Dave was a real estate investor. He owned single family properties and multi family properties in Pennsylvania where I grew up and um, again befriended him and uh, within a few weeks of um, uh, of our of our meeting he invited me to a, a real estate boot camp down in Philadelphia I had no idea what a boot camp really was it just to me it was just he was taking me to this training seminar and I didn't know what I was going to learn and it was a Ron Legrand boot camp I think Ron Legrand's still out there teaching somewhere the guy's been teaching for like 50 years um, but it was a three-day boot camp on how to fix and flip single-family homes and 
I went there. I was overwhelmed and successful, at least in my eyes, they were. Uh, you know, they were making more money than I'd ever thought was possible making, way more than my parents, you know, uh, made. A lot of these guys were doing that on one deal, more than my parents were making an entire year salary. And um, I, I left that three days with. Uh, with a lot of excitement and, um, and a lot of fear as well, because I, I didn't really know what I didn't know at that point. And I just, I knew I wanted to get involved. Uh, and so I, I essentially went to David and I, I said, David, you know, you're doing this stuff. I mean, this is your business. How can I help you? You know, how, how can I, how can I be around you more and get a, some better insights as to what you do on a daily basis? How you do what you do? How do you make your decisions? And how do you choose what properties to buy and which ones not to buy? And how do you deal with contractors? Like all these different pieces that I had, you know, learned about uh, over this three day seminar. How do you manage all that? And how do you do it successfully? So how can I help you? And, um, you know, again, him and I had already built a, a friendship. Uh, and, and he accepted, he accepted my offer to help him. And, and really what that looked like, guys, is uh, for like the next, it was about 14 months. I, um, between attending bar in the evenings and uh, attending community college, you know, that's taken 12, 12 to 15 credits or so. Um, you know, I had, I had some downtime, but not a ton. And I would go to David's home office or I would meet him out in the field and uh, meet with contractors. I'd help, help him, you know, prepare leases. Uh, just, I'd do the admin type of work. I'd do anything he asked me to do. So that I could be more involved in his day to day operations and his business. And, and, uh, that's what I did. I, I just, I tried to give as much value as I could to David. And while I was giving value, I was learning in return. And, uh, 14 months into it, I finally felt like I had enough knowledge and information and uh, enough of a support mechanism that I went out and bought my own, you know, my first property, which was a really run down, um, uh, row home in, in downtown Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, it was a really rough property, probably not something I'd ever think of buying today. Um, lots of mistakes made, lots of challenges, but ultimately, um, renovated it, fixed it and flipped it and made a profit. Um, probably not as much as I should have made, but, um, again, mistakes were made along the way, which I didn't make the second, the third, and fourth time, right? I kind of learned from those mistakes. And, uh, um, really that, that was the foundation. That's what started it all. So initially my business was fixing and flipping single family homes. And I did that for a few years in, in Pennsylvania, about two to be exact. And then I, I, I was done with school and I was ready to get the heck out of the cold weather. I, you know, growing up there, I just, I never got used to the winters. It just never, never became attractive to me to have the gray skies and not see the sunshine for weeks at a time, um, and have to wear jackets and all that kind of mess. Uh, and so I, I knew I wanted to either get near the water, get near the ocean, which was, you know, down floor. Um, I was also very keen on Denver and I know that that is, it gets cold there, but they get a lot of sunshine and, uh, there's lots of activities and I'm really into snowboarding. I love, uh, mountain biking and cycling and all that kind of stuff. So, but I figured I'd, I'd test my hand at Florida first. And so I did that. I moved down to Florida. And um, another exciting thing about Florida was the real estate market was kind of on its upward on its upward trend in 2002. And uh, in Tampa Bay area, it was hot. It was growing like crazy. And uh, moved to Tampa and, and just started off and running. Uh, started a, a, a real estate investment company. Uh, simultaneously started a mortgage company and, um, and, and just started buying properties. And met a number of partners. You know, started building relationships with private money lenders and uh, really was starting to buy for more of a buy and hold strategy. That was kind of the game plan. That was what David taught me. You know, don't just don't continually create a job for yourself. Really, you know, create a long term sustainable income, kind of have that target of where you where you need to be on a monthly basis and then work backwards into it. How many properties do you need to purchase in order to you know hit that monthly income or cash flow goal? And so that's what I did. I was off and running and um, Bought a, uh, a quite a large number of single family properties, 
um, in the early 2000s, uh, acquired, uh, ended up acquiring about 100, 122 uh, single family rentals and then just under 500 apartment doors um, in my portfolio, kind of like buy and hold portfolio um, leading into the 2007, 2008 financial crisis. And um, everything kind of turned upside down at that point in time, guys, and uh, lost most of what I had built over those years. I mean, literally lost uh, pretty much everything other than a handful of properties. And uh, at that point, uh, took a couple years off, started a few other businesses outside of real estate, not not related at all to real estate. 2011, 2012 era, had that burning desire to really dive back in. I, you know, it was one of those things where I loved what I did and um, it was never considered a, a job to me. I was always, always woke up excited about the, the, you know, the hunt of the deal and just opportunities were endless uh, in, in real estate. And so the burning desire was still there. And uh, during that, that, that period, 2011, 2012, I got introduced into what we're in today and that's mobile home parks. And that was, again, by accident. It seems like a lot of things kind of happened by accident in my life. Um, and they turned out to be good opportunities. Uh, I met a guy that was a mutual friend of, of, uh, of mine and uh, Rod Cleef, who's a good friend of mine and also a fellow podcaster and investor. Um, met a guy named Randy that was a good friend of Rod's. And, and uh, uh, Randy was a mobile home park investor here in Florida. He was uh, had just retired from a bank and uh, started buying mobile home parks. Had a few very large ones and did quite well. And I met him for lunch one day and he just, I wasn't really excited about what he was doing, but I was just going to meet someone new, someone that could help me expand my network. And I left that two hour lunch meeting um, with a newfound interest. And that was really mobile home parks. Like dead serious. I walked away from me with Randy and I was like, I'm going to buy a mobile home park. Like what Randy told me, this sounds really exciting. I never considered it before. I'm going to learn all I can. And I kind of set like a goal of 12 months. I wanted to buy a park and either either prove or disprove this business model, you know, this investment model. And uh, I, that that I did that. I, it took me about 14 months to buy that first park, and um, really the rest is history. I and mean, we bought the first park. Um, took me about eight months to buy the second park, and then we bought the third park and fourth park. And uh, today um, we we built. Um, we're still a small company. We've got eight full time employees, and then. Uh, a number of folks out in the field, but uh, we've got parks in uh, now it's 12 different states across the country. And um, this is our core focus is mobile home parks uh, throughout the U.S. Wow. Quite the story. So let, let's let's rewind here just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Did did you get rid of all your single family personal investments and multifamily investments in the crash? Did you literally essentially kind of, quote unquote, go to zero? Pretty much, uh, not not all at one time. So the single family stuff, it kind of sunk me, and and um, you know, the, the, for many different reasons. Southwest Florida was kind of ground zero, as were, were a few other parts of the country, and so um, we had very low leverage points on everything we owned, uh, you know, in the sixty percent range. But within a year, all those values were upside down. I mean, Southwest Florida, like, like Tampa and south of here, like literally you know, 50, 60 percent loss of value, and so not only were we upside down, but there was a big hit to the rental market here as well. I know that everyone preaches how even in the, the you know the toughest of times, people are losing their homes. They still need to rent something. That that that, that rents don't always go up. Just let me tell you that. And anyone that that you meet that uh, owned real estate in Southwest Florida, that was a uh, a landlord in the rental business during that period of time, I can promise you they're going to probably have a very similar story to mine. Of uh, not made that they not that they lost it. But that rents don't always go up. Sometimes they're stagnant and sometimes they actually go down. Sometimes you have to give big concessions in order to get units occupied. And so my single, single family portfolio had a lot of challenges to where we had to make a, it was more of a strategic decision to default. Um, you know, when we first 
realized we couldn't maintain, you know, uh, you know, our debt payments to the banks. The banks weren't really flexible. It was so so recent that this crash was really um, happening, and it hadn't really reached the magnitude of what it did, you know, by the year, you know, 2008, 2009. And so a lot of these banks weren't they weren't flexible yet. Um, we lost a lot of the single family home stuff. It went into foreclosure. Um, did a few workouts, did a number of short sales, but th- there was a number of properties that we just lost. The banks weren't, you know, again, weren't willing to work with us. This, the, the multifamily stuff, we, we, um, you know, it, it, we didn't lose it per se. Uh, but what happened with a lot of the multifamily stuff is, uh, our credit uh, became, you know, not so great because of the defaults. Uh, and then we had a lot of uh, shorter term debt on our multifamily properties. And when the time came to get new debt in place, th- th- like the, the capital markets were very challenging as is, let alone now I've got subpar credit. Um, and so we had uh, great difficulties on getting any new debt put in place on our apartment complexes and, and really had to sell them, had to sell them at the bottom of the market. It was the most painful, painful thing ever because now I see what they're worth today and uh, if we could have only held on, right? But Sold them and, and walked away from those, um, not losing money, but surely not making money either. It kind of gave them away as a fire sale um, just because we had debt coming due. And so lost half of it, sold the other half at, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, very, very low bottom market prices and uh, really had a literally had a handful, had five properties left after it was all said and done. Uh, five, five properties that just happened to be in partnerships that I wasn't able to get out of. And, uh, and that's what really, you know, during the recession went from, I don't know what the, my, my portfolio was probably worth about, about $35 million or $40 million to, you know, less than a million dollars pretty quickly in a matter of like two years, two and a half years. So it was, um, it was a very painful experience. I learned a lot. I've reflected on it many different times of what I would have done differently. I surely have walked away with with a completely different business mindset as we have moved for, moved forward in our business and and how we structure things today and how we underwrite things. But uh, but even then, I feel like I was a very conservative investor back then, and uh, I just think that there's some there's some ultimate challenges that exist with the single family space. And when you look at it from a um, from a scaling standpoint or from an efficiency standpoint of of the management side of the business and um, uh, even the acquisition side of uh, buying the properties, uh, you know, it, it takes such a big, big effort to purchase 120 or 150 single family homes. You could ultimately put that same effort and buy 5,000 apartment units or 5,000 mobile home units um, with the same efforts. And so I just think that there's a lot of inefficiencies in that space. And that's not why we, you know, why we ultimately defaulted. But, um, you know, there's a better way. It's kind of what I learned when I reflected back. There's a much better way in a bigger way. Yeah, it's a super interesting story, right? Because I think often when you hear those stories, especially from, you know, 2008, 2009, you think that people were over leveraged. And so yeah. the point of just, hey, rents don't always go up. I think we've, we've become spoiled to that in the last you know 10 years or so, whatever it's been. And, and that we think, hey, if I just keep my leveraging queue, everything will be okay. Um, but, but obviously wasn't the case. What, what do you think the, the couple of biggest things you learned from that was? Or is there one thing you kind of looked back and said, hey, if I were to have, have done this differently, I could have saved the portfolio? Is there anything like that? Yeah, you know, one thing that we do today, um, and this more would pertain to like our multifamily properties that we had back then. You know, we're really uh, we we really uh, run it through different sensitivity analysis um, based on what kind of debt structure it qualifies for today, and then we run different worst case scenario models out, and, and we put stress load on it. We will run it out. Let's say it's a five year note. Let's say that's all it's going to qualify for today because uh, it's not fully stabilized. So it's going to be it's going to have a five year balloon. Uh, it's not, it's not going to be like a Fannie or Freddie, uh, Mac loan where it's for a fully stabilized property. So what we'll do is we'll say, Hey, you know, we're getting a 5.5 rate today. 
And I know that our assumptions show that, you know, ideally we're going to add value to it. We're going to stabilize it and we're going to pull X amount of dollars out year three, uh, get our investors some of their capital back. Uh, we're going to put a new loan in place that has this amortization term and this rate, blah, blah, blah. You know, like we kind of run that out. Like that's the best case scenario. Now, what happens if? What happens if instead of a 25-year amortization, we're only going to get 20? What happens if we can't get cash out and get our investors um, that percentage back of their uh, initial capital contribution? What happens if rates, instead of them going to uh, 5.75 that we had modeled, uh, they're at 6.5? What happens there? Can we, can, we, can we maintain this property? Can we be responsible, still pay our investors? Can this property be sustainable even through uh, you know, a downturn or a correction um, if it doesn't play out exactly how we uh, projected in the beginning. And so we run it through a stress test and we, again, try to figure out what that worst case scenario looks like. And whenever we get to that threshold, you know, which is what we kind of call the cliff, we have an internal discussion here with the principals and we see if we're comfortable with standing at that cliff and if we feel like that's really going to, uh, if that's a possibility of happening or, you know, do we pass on it and say, you know, there's a big probability of that cliff really occurring. Um, there's not enough margin in there of safety. Let's move on to the next deal. So I, I can't say that we, we went through that in depth analysis, uh, when we were buying properties back in, um, you know, in the early 2000s. Uh, we surely did. We were conservative in the fact that we didn't put a lot of leverage in place, but we never thought that we wouldn't be able to get cash out or refinances. We never really considered that there's a chance that we might not be able to get new debt put in place at the, um, you know, desired terms that we were looking for. You know, we just, we, we didn't think ahead as much back then as we do today. Um, and I think that's really just made us much more responsible investors and we're in this for the long term. Um, and, and, and our intent is to hold most of the properties we buy for the long term, but, you know, things happen, you know, just because things are going great. Great. Today doesn't mean that um, that there isn't an unexpected correction or downturn or some type of major event that occurs that changes our trajectory. You know that 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 doesn't allow our plan to work out as intended. Yeah, and, and who knows when it's going to happen, right? That's it. Yeah, you, you have no idea. You have no yeah. idea. And so we want to know that our properties are, are truly they can support themselves and uh, and and that they no matter what happens again our worst case scenario that cliff that I'm talking about that that we're working within a very large margin of safety, no matter what might occur here in the coming years. Sure, sure. So before we jump into some mobile home park investing and, and kind of hear about those stories, I just want to take it back to where you got started. So you're working at the bar late at night, right, to make some money. You're going to community college. You're working for mm -hmm. this guy, David, in real estate, right? Super admirable. And I, I think doesn't probably happen enough now where people go work and, and try and pick up skills and learn from somebody. But you said 14 months later, that's kind of when you went and bought your first deal. So maybe talk about your first few deals and, and was that all your personal money, how you got the money to buy it, what type of deal it was, how long you held it for, how much profit you had when you sold? Yeah, no, no that's a great question. It was it was my own money, uh, at least the downstroke uh, was, uh, you know, being that I had befriended David and um, it allowed me to kind of plug into some of the, his resources and his network. Uh, and so the first deal, I did get a uh, majority of the, uh, the money and the rehab uh, costs from a private lender that he had built a relationship with. Uh, this is an individual that I had gotten to know well over those 14 months, right? Cause I, we had a lot of interactions. David had a lot of money that he had borrowed from this guy. And, um, and so I had the opportunity to, to kind of tie on to that relationship and, uh, and, and build, you know, my own relationship with this investor. And so I put $8,000 down the first deal. Um, uh, you know, that was, that was bartending money. That was money that I had saved up myself, uh, attending bar you know, while going to school. And, um, you know, I bought that first property with the intent of 
flipping it. Like that's all I had. Like, I used like most of the money I had saved. I don't think I had much more than eight grand. I think maybe I had like 10 grand in the bank or something like that. And so most of it went towards this property. I was, I was really scared as hell because I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how long it would sit on the market. Um, you know, David, you know, kind of suggested that that part of town, if I did X, Y, and Z rehab to it, expect to, you know, to move it in 60 or 90 days. But you know, that, that's, that's all theoretical, right? Like when it's your own money, that's all your money on the table. It's still scary as hell, even though you're hearing that advice from someone that's been there and done that. And so, but that did happen. I did sell that first property, um, in that, you know, in that general time frame he had suggested walked away, I think with about, about a $20,000 profit when it was all said and done, um, turned around and did it again, bought another, you know, rundown home. And I did that a number of times where I was just, I was trying to build up capital. I was trying to build up my own little, you know, stack of cash that, uh, to where I could do this in a bigger way and to where I could truly start buying some, um, some properties to hold. And again, I was really working towards that model, get to the point to where you can hold, you know, maybe one out of every five properties and then maybe one out of every three properties so that you can build this long-term cash flow. And so the, the first couple of years, um, in Pennsylvania, I didn't buy anything to hold. It was only buying and flipping again, mostly lower end. Um, most of these price points that I was buying in was like in the twenty and thirty thousand dollar range, with end values being somewhere in like the you know sixty to seventy thousand range. Uh, that, that was kind of my sweet spot back then, and, uh, and I, I kept doing that until moving to Florida. And Florida is where things changed a little bit. I, um, I I built some partnerships that allowed me to access more capital that allowed us to change our business model a little bit to where we could start holding property and really build a model around buy and hold real estate versus the flipping side. I wasn't a huge fan of flipping properties. I just, I kind of saw it as a job. It wasn't really enjoyable to me. I didn't really, I didn't see it as investing in real estate. If you're just buying something, fixing it up and selling it, that to me, that's not investing, right? Cause you got to turn around and go do it again. You got to put that capital work somewhere else. And, um, and I, I didn't like that model. And so, uh, ultimately we switched it fairly quickly when I moved to Florida and, um, and, and very rarely, uh, once I landed down here, very rarely did, we ever flip anything um, we purchased. But the only time we ever flipped anything is if it was something that we just knew wasn't a good fit based on the neighborhood, uh, based on maybe the floor plan. You know, a lot of times we would just wholesale it or we would do very minor rehab to it and turn around and sell it to someone else that you know maybe wanted to keep it as a rental. But again, it wasn't a good fit for our long-term portfolio again, based on neighborhood, floor plan, layout, whatever it might be. So anyway, that, that's, that's really what the start looked like. And I, I forget the other part of your question, but... <laughs> No, that's good. That's good. Let's just let's jump into the uh, mobile home parks. And I'd ask you about the first deal, but maybe let's start yeah. big picture on it yeah. and say, why are mobile home parks or why have you found mobile home parks to be more advantageous than apartment buildings? Because obviously you've done both and now you're sticking to home parks. Yeah, you know, it's and I still like apartment buildings. So, you know, I'm not going to this isn't a, you know, why one's better than the other. I've, uh, you know, I've owned apartments. I like that niche. And uh, there's nothing wrong with it, right? I, I, I'm just a, I'm a person that enjoys focus. So I like to pick something that I uh, truly believe in and then put all the efforts towards it moving forward. And, um, you know, mobile home parks, there were a number of things that Randy told me that day that ultimately uh, really came true as I dug into the space. Um, one of the things that was really intriguing to me is that that mobile home parks are the uh, only asset class that have a diminishing supply and that there's more mobile home parks that, re- that get redeveloped every year, get shut down. Then that get built. And so the barrier to entry is, is so significant, which I like, right? You, you basically are buying a product that has a kind of has a wall built around it for the most part, where you don't necessarily have to worry about, you know, an oversupply of that product in the marketplace. And you do have to typically worry about that 
in the multifamily space. You know, if it's in, an, if the multifamily uh, uh, properties are in an area that have land for growth, then at some point there's a risk of oversupply, right? That doesn't exist in our space at all. The main reason being, We've got somewhat of a bad name in our industry, and uh, municipalities really don't like mobile home parks. They don't like it because they feel like it attracts the wrong element, and it's not really the the case for the most part. Um, but there's a lot. There are some bad operators out there that have somewhat given the industry a bad reputation. And so that's kind of the not in my backyard syndrome. So if you were to go to wherever you guys live, either one of you, and you had a piece of land um, anywhere near town or in town and went to ask about building a mobile home park on that piece of land or getting the zoning to do so, the chances are probably about 99.9% that they're going to say no, and they're going to do everything in their power to um, dissuade you from that project or even talking about that project. Um, in addition to that, the tax basis of a mobile home park for a municipality are nowhere near what it would be for any other type of commercial development, especially like a multifamily apartment complex. So um, there's much larger tax benefits and incentives for the municipality with any other type of commercial real estate development uh, over a mobile home park itself, because uh, you're really just paying taxes on the land. And then the individual mobile homes are like a personal piece of property that that the uh, the residents they do pay taxes on them, but they're depreciating assets. So the, the tax base um, typically never goes higher, it goes lower over time. Um, uh, and so that's one of the big ones. Another one was, you know, the returns. Uh, and that's it's getting a little tighter today. But, what, you know, comparatively speaking, if you take any given market, I don't care where in the U.S., and if you truly try to compare apples to apples and say a 100-unit apartment complex, let's just say it's a C-class, um, and you take a 100-unit mobile home park in a, uh, you know, a comparable uh, neighborhood, school district, you know, same quality, same demographic of residents, you should expect a higher yield premium uh, or return from that mobile home park than you would get in that apartment complex based on what you can buy these assets at today. Again, that's not always the case and it really comes down to you being able to buy right, but there's a lot of opportunity in our space still to purchase from uh, aging mom and pop owners that just haven't done a great job with operating these assets. They've left a lot of room for upside potential. And so, you know, whereas you might be paying a six cap on a uh, C-class apartment complex in Tampa, Florida, um, you should be able to buy a mobile home park of the similar quality for maybe a seven cap, right? So uh, you get a point uh, difference in that yield uh, or that return. And so lots of benefits there from that standpoint. Uh, in addition to that, there's, um, you know, the management side of, of our space is much less intensive than that of an apartment uh, complex. Uh, you know, you're just managing the common areas and the infrastructure. You're not managing, you know, calls about ACs breaking or roofs leaking or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, these residents own their own homes and they're responsible for their dwellings. I mean, so if their roof leaks, they call the roofer. If their AC breaks, they call the HVAC guy. Like they're not calling you, the landlord or the manager on site. How that kind of plays into the, uh, you know, the lower turnover is if they own their own home, they can't just pack up their bags and leave in the middle of the night like they might be able to in an apartment complex. You know, if, if you live in an apartment and you've got to get out of Dodge, you know, you, you can literally throw your mattresses on the roof of your car, you know, pack all your stuff up and, you know, suitcases and trash bags, whatever else. And you could be out pretty quickly, you know, and I've seen it happen many times uh, in a mobile home park. It's not so easy. You know, they own that home. They can't just hook it up to their suburban and tow it away. It's quite expensive to move these mobile homes. Uh, and so they very rarely ever leave the park. And so if someone does leave, they, they normally put the home for sale on the market like a regular single family home would go up for sale. Someone else buys that home. They uh, move in and they continue paying the lot rent. So the, the turnover is very minimal 
Uh, and you very rarely have any kind of downtime like that would exist in a apartment, you know, to where you've got something that moves out. Now you got to do a make ready on it. You might have a 30, 60 days of downtime where you're not collecting revenue and you're putting money back into it to get it ready for that next resident. That typically does not exist in our space. And so those are just some of the, the high level points of why we, why we like the space so much. Um, you know, and, uh, why we think there's still a lot of opportunity here. Uh, I'd spoken to like the aging owner population that own a lot of these parks. There's still a lot of first generation owners that might have either had a hand in building it or, it's been in their family, um, you know, since inception, uh, you know, and, and they're getting up there in age. You know, the average age of the folks that we've been buying from over these last five or six years have been 70 years or older. Uh, you know, they're, they're older individuals, not all of them, but a number of them have been older individuals, uh, you know, 70s and 80s. And um, most of them have kind of not lost interest, but they haven't they haven't really maximized the opportunity that they've got over the last 15, 20, 25 years. And so, you know, we kind of step in with a new perspective and uh, we see that there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of upside and, um, and, and we know how to capitalize on it. So um, anyway. Awesome. Awesome. So let me pepper you with a few rapid fire questions here. So you're maybe let's just take an average, right? For, for a mobile yeah. home park, how many spaces are typically there? I mean, it's uh, a mobile home park is anything that's two spaces or greater. So, I mean, in our portfolio, I think our average is probably, you know, closer to a hundred uh, okay. average size. But I mean, there, there's two, there, there's mobile home parks that consist of two mobile homes on one lot. And there's the, some that are as large as like 2000 or larger, you know, so uh, totally it's, it's such varied. a, it's, it's a wide range. Yep. Fair. And when you buy a mobile home park, what, what will be the, I don't know what you call it, occupancy rate. How many homes would be there? Would it be fully occupied? 50% occupied probably depends as well. Yeah, it depends. It really depends. I mean, we're value add buyers. So we're okay with, um, you know, rolling up our sleeves and buying something that's not fully optimized today. And so uh, that can mean a few different things. It can mean that, if it's a hundred space mobile home park, maybe only fifty of the the spaces have homes physically on them. Um, there's fifty other spaces there, but they're empty, so they're not generating revenue. And so, in, in that situation, we would uh, you know buy a new brand mobile and create a sales center essentially. So, bring new mobile homes into that community and uh, sell fifty homes to new residents and essentially um, you know you know, fill up the community. So that's one way. A lot of communities we purchase. Um, have a majority of the lots occupied already, but maybe the collections aren't the greatest. Maybe they're, um, you've got a lot of delinquencies, uh, you know, uh, we'll go in and fix a delinquency issue, um, put a collection policy in place, very black and white. Um, rents could be below market. So we'll go in and do some capital improvements, clean the place up, repave the roads, you know, put some nice landscaping in, um, bring rents up the market and, you know, which drives that NOI, that bottom line number. So every, every park's a little different than the next. But for the most part, we're not buying fully stabilized properties. We find that, um, you know, the, the there there might be some heavy lifting, but it's it's fairly easy if you know what you're doing. It's fairly easy to obtain upside in our space, and so we'd rather do a little bit of work and get a reward on the back end for it. Sure, sure, kind of the value add. So, how much are they renting the spaces for? Um, a national average is somewhere in the 300 range. You know, there's markets where it's over a thousand a month. Um, there's some, you know, parts of like Louisiana, Mississippi, where you might still find parks that are, you know, $150 a month. But, you know, I think our lowest park today, I think we're in like the 250 range. And that might be in Kentucky somewhere where we've got some communities. And then our highest is probably going to be closer to 500. 
okay. uh, and a few of the and, northeastern markets. So, and how much is a trailer? An average cost of a trailer that's parked at one of these spaces? Yeah, so we've been buying a lot of new single wides. Uh, you know, like a uh, like a builder grade model, three bedroom, two bath. They're about twelve hundred square feet. Uh, again, kind of a, a builder grade model, not super high end. And, and there is such a thing as a very high end mobile home, but. Uh, we're out the door. Our price on something like that, like delivered and set up in our community, about about thirty five thousand dollars is what we can get a you know twelve hundred square foot three bedroom two bath brand new home for. Okay, and and you say you're buying them, um, but previously said that the residents own them. So are you, are you buying them and putting them there and then trying to rent them? Yeah, so if we have a if we have a community that has empty lots, remember I gave you the example of hundred lot community, fifty of them are occupied with homes. There's fifty empty lots. Part one of the upside strategies is to bring homes into the community and sell them. And so we'll bring a brand new home in. We've got a dealer's license in all the states that we operate in. So we can get them at cost from the manufacturer. We'll bring them in and then we'll offer, we've got some in-house financing programs. We'll basically get a, a, a loan in place for an end buyer that wants to live in the community and, and buy a brand new home. So we'll buy it initially and then we'll sell it essentially either for break even or for a profit, one or the other. But our goal is to get someone in that home um, that owns that home that just w- wants to pay us lot rent. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then obviously you said you don't do any of the repairs, but the biggest pieces are then common areas and utilities. So how do mm-hmm. utilities work? Do you, you just contract that out to a local provider or, or something separate? Yeah. I mean, normally the utilities are provided by the municipalities. And so, I mean, when I say we've got to upkeep the water and sewer, we basically have to, if there's a clog in the sewer line that's inside our park, you know, between the home and between the uh, exterior of our property line, property line, then we've got to, you know, we'll get a rotor rooter in there or whatever and unclog it. Or if we have a sewer line collapse, we can fix that. But it's really just working with outside vendors. Typically, we have a few uh, plumbers that we not on staff, but just vendors that we trust that are local. And then same with the water leaks, you know, water lines, Break leaks every once in a while. It just happens. Um, typically, it's pretty visible and noticeable when it happens. And we'll get a plumber out there to, you know, dig into the ground and fix the um, the water line, and you're back off and running. Uh, so it's really it's it's not as um, as maintenance intensive as what what sound word. Um, as far as the common grounds, a lot of times we we maintain the landscaping and mowing of the common areas, and then also if we have a office or clubhouse on site, uh, we maintain maintain that as well. But it's very very minimal um, uh, across the board. Uh, for the most part, a lot of the maintenance happens on the homes themselves. And again, the goal is to not own those homes, have the residents actually own the homes. Sure. So on the ones that you do buy and place in the park, you'd be responsible for maintenance on those homes or do you just sell the home completely? Yeah, we typically sell the home completely. I mean, we we do own a number of homes in our communities. I think we've probably got about the number of berries because we keep buying communities and we sell homes. But I think we own about 150 homes uh, throughout all of our parks. And most of the reasons why we own homes at this point is because when we bought the community, Maybe the person we bought it from had a slightly different business model than us, and they actually owned a large number of homes and had them as rentals. We don't like—I don't like that model because, uh, again, I don't like maintaining the roofs and the ACs, and and uh, it just creates a much more management-intensive business. And so, um, when we acquire communities, sometimes they come with rental units um, that that you know residents do not own. But when we acquire those communities, our goal, first priority, is to either try to convert convert the existing renters into owners. When their lease renews, uh, we'll basically, we'll you know kill the lease and then turn around, rehab that home, and sell it to the open market and find someone that actually wants to own the home, so that we can take that management and maintenance burden off of our shoulders. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Makes sense, and that's a, a big difference, I think, between you know single and multifamily. Maybe walk us through your first deal, how big it was. Was it all your money? Did you raise money? How many partners? And and then maybe along with that, if if someone wants to get into this, what type, you know, what size did they start with? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great question. Uh, so the first park that we bought was in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we still own it today. We, we, uh, you know, we bought it at the right price, but it's a 35 space park. Um, we, we bought the park itself for $200,000. Um, it was, uh, incredibly rough deal. It was in receivership for like two years. So it had gone through, it was in the foreclosure process, had been vandalized uh, severely, had a number of squatters living in the community, had lots of vacant units that had been abandoned. It was a complete disaster, really. Um, but well, we bought it right. Um, had good infrastructure in place. And at that point, we didn't really know we didn't know. And so um, it was a partner and I that actually went into that endeavor together with someone that I've owned a lot of real estate with in the past and uh, actually own a number of parks with him today. Uh, he's a person that I, I bought the first, I think, six parks with before we created the company today, which is known as Sunrise Capital Investors. But we bought that park for 200. I think we put about another 350 into it. We had to renovate every single unit. We actually acquired that park and we acquired all the units in the park. Again, not really our preference of business model today. Uh, but back then, um, you know, it, it made sense and we had a plan of selling off those units, uh, over the years. And so we had to, we had to go in and renovate each, each and every one of those homes, put about $8,000 into each one. And then a lot of renovations and improvements to the infrastructure of the park. It took about eight months to turn the entire thing around, uh, to get it to where we were, you know, in a lease up stage and the reputation was changing. We changed the name of the community because it really was, it was the place that had the bad rep, that the place that you knew you could go get drugs. And, um, you know, we got the police involved and got them, you know, allowed them to do sting setups and all that kind of stuff in the park. And we even donated the unit temporarily uh, as a police substation, uh, so that we could have a police car in that park and just really get the word out there that, this place is no longer what it used to be. It's changed hands and, uh, and we're doing things right now. We've got good people that live in here and they want a clean, safe and quiet environment to, to raise their family in. And so, um, again, it took about eight months to fully turn it around and get all the units renovated. Um, and about, about 13 months till we hit full stabilization until we had all the units, uh, leased up or sold. And, um, yeah, so we're into it for, you know, just, I think just under, uh, but right about 500 grand. Uh, we just got it refinanced, I think a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, and it appraised for 1.4 million and throws off a ton of cash flow, uh, each and every month and year. So uh, we still own it today. It's smaller than what we would, uh, um, would consider buying today. Um, just based on the amount of resources and energy that it takes to do a small deal. It's about the same that it takes to do one that's five times the size. And so we typically look for larger opportunities today than what we might have back then. But um, still, it was a great deal, great learning experience. And uh, I'd say, you know, the, the, you asked a question about the normal, you know, the, the size that maybe someone should start with. Uh, you know, what you, really what you want to look for is um, you kind of asked me the question about the lot rents across the country. Like, what are they? Like, what's the average? And it ranges. Some are very poor and rural. You know, like I said, like Mississippi, Louisiana, um, states like that have got some very poor markets where lot rents are 150 bucks a month. Uh, and then you got markets where you got lot rents that are $500 a month or greater. Uh, this park there in Atlanta, their lot rent, I think we're at $405 a month right now in our lot rent. So it's fairly strong. You want to know that you have enough revenue in that community to factor in the cost of having an on-site manager either live, they don't necessarily have to live there, but ideally live in the community or reside close by. But you want to have a, a day-to-day person that handles the operations, someone that can collect rents, that can hand out late notices, you know, scan checks or make bank deposits, depending on what your systems look like, but basically manage the day-to-day operations of that community. And so uh, I have found if, you, if you're just talking to the, you know, a park that has kind of national average lot rents in place, about 35 or 40 spaces should generate enough revenue upon stabilization to where you can kind of underwrite into your numbers 
a uh, not necessarily a full time, but a, a, a on site manager to oversee the day to day operations. And it's not a full time job, not in that size of a park, but that person might make, you know, $12,000 a year, $15,000 a year for working, you know, maybe five or 10 hours a week. So uh, that, that's kind of, that's how I try to answer that question about what size you should be looking at. Cause if you buy smaller, there's a good chance that you're, you're going to be the one running it. And, um, not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but it's not a scalable business model. So unless you want to be the guy that has to, you know, hang out in the mobile home park office all day long and, uh, take calls from disgruntled tenants and evict people, um, then maybe you can save that money and manage it yourself. But if you truly want to be able to have a on-site professional person there, then, uh, 35 or 40 spaces should be the size you're really start at. Awesome. Kevin, just to wrap up here, what, what advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out and where, where can people find you? Yeah, advice. I mean, it's quite straightforward. I mean, if you really are just starting out and, and you haven't bought your first property, I'd say, um, you know, education is important, right? With back when, when I started, there was no such thing as a podcast. And uh, we had, it's funny, I just brought in, um, I was cleaning out the house that we just lived in. We just bought, uh, built a new house and I was going through some old boxes. I found like old cassette tapes. Like literally, I used to listen to, real estate training programs, um, you know, on cassette tapes, what now you find for free on podcast, but you know, educate yourself, listen to, you know, your guys, you guys have a great podcast. Uh, there's thousands of them out there on whatever topic or whatever uh, real estate niche you're looking for. So educate yourself, a lot of free information out there. Bigger pockets is a great forum as well. Focus is probably the, the part that comes into play that, that, that I see that so many people struggle with guys is, you know, when you're getting started, it's overwhelming as hell. It just is because you, you, you end up talking, you go to these real estate investment clubs, you go to a, a seminar or a weekend boot camp, and you meet so many people that are making money or say they're making money in so many different ways, right? And you're like, oh my God, like, what do I pick? Do I pick mobile home parks? Do I pick multifamily? Do I pick raw land? Do I pick single family? Do I fix and flip? Do I wholesale? Bottom line is there's a thousand and one or more different ways to make money in real estate. Pick one, have some reasons behind you pick that one. You know, like it, it aligns with your, your, your investment philosophy or it's going to truly help you achieve that long-term goal, whatever that is to you. But, you know, pick one. It doesn't mean you can't change down the road, but pick one and just focus on it for a set period of time. Just, it's not going to happen, you know, instantly. Give yourself a 12 or 18 or 24 months to learn it understand it and take action and actually make some progress in it uh, and just ignore everything else along the way. And it's going to be hard, but just ignore all your friends, all these people you're meeting that are saying how great their niche is or how much money they're making. And stop looking at Facebook of all the posts that everyone's bragging about how many units <laughs> they own, all that crap. It's just uh, seriously, it's, 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 uh, it's discouraging because a lot of the information is false out there. A lot of it's accurate, but there's still a lot of false out there and it, and it, and it makes you feel like you're not, doing as well as everyone else just ignore all that other crap and just focus and um, put the time and put the energy in and uh, anyway that, that's the advice i would give as far as getting a hold of me pretty easy to track down again as you guys had mentioned i got two podcasts i do on a weekly basis one is real estate investing for cash flow uh, and the other is the mobile home park investing podcast so uh you can you know find me there or my website kevinbup.com um you can contact me through there and then our company, uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about what we're doing in the mobile home park space, uh, it's sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. And so uh, any of those different avenues, you can track me down. I'm pretty easy to find. And uh, yeah, that's all I have, guys. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kevin, hey, thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. 
For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.